Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's you, Hugh. It's the last hour of the radio week. And that means, of course, from the Hillsdale Studios on Kirby Center, I am talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. And it is the uh, the hour in which we usually plumb the depths of greatness in the West. But this week, instead, we have to talk about the State of the Union because uh, even though it wasn't the greatness of the West, Dr. Arn, it was significant. In fact, um, the most significant part, I think, is Paul Ryan's first State of the Union address on the podium. Long may he be there. Yeah, he uh, he. I watched him a lot during the thing, and he he looked uh, placid. I wouldn't say he looked enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, that. <laughs> it, it, very restrained. Uh, and, and for, but I said to a New York Times writer this morning, I hope he's up there for 20 years. Whether he is vice president, president, or the speaker, I'll take any of those three chairs for him for the any next those, many years. Yeah, yeah. yeah they've, uh, I'm uh, talking to the Republican retreat tomorrow some in Baltimore, and uh, it, uh, I look forward to it because there's some energy there, I think, and hope. I, uh, for the benefit of the audience, I was with Dr. Arn on Monday uh, when a number of Republicans were at the Kirby Center that Hillsdale College operates. And we went back and forth. And the greatest satisfaction I've had in a long time is that one of Dr. Arn's former students thought that it was remarkable that I spoke more than Dr. Arn did. I, I thought that was great. <laughs> Silly boy. He, uh, he's, he's, he's an important now, man now, but he's a student of mine. And they're getting old enough now that they sort of count coup on me sometimes in public. And it's, just, it's, it's fulfilling and disturbing. So. <laughs> it's actually been a count coup. That's a very, very funny. That's true. They do. <laughs> that, and there are many of them. You're surrounded, buddy, after 20 years. They're becoming very capable now, right? So they like. Take take care of me the way they would they might their grandfather and that is they humor me. <laughs> yeah, just, but I hadn't realized that they're like legion and you're surrounded. You can't walk down the street without a Hillsdale grad coming. Out. Well, let's go after the uh, the substance, thin though it might be, of the speech. I've got to begin uh, with this cut because you are the president of wonderful Hillsdale College. Cut number one. We should recruit and support more great teachers for our kids. And. And we have to make college affordable for every American. No hardworking student should be stuck in the red. We've already reduced student loan payments by, uh, to 10% of a borrower's income. And that's good. But now we've actually got to cut the cost of college. Providing two years of community college at no cost for every responsible student is one of the best ways to do that. And I'm going to keep fighting to get that started this year. It's the right thing to do. Now, the reason I begin with this, Dr. Arn, is here you are. You're the president of a college, and the president of the United States, who has no authority over you whatsoever <laughs> about your tuition, is telling you you've got to cut the cost of your college. Yeah. Well, our college is, is expensive and cheap. It costs us a lot, but it doesn't cost the students a lot. Uh, it costs your listeners a lot because they're generous with the college. And sure enough, it's a great idea for, for kids to get through. To, first of all, it's a great idea for kids to get an education that builds their intellect and their character. And it's a great, and that's not, that's not cheap if you do it at a high level, but it's a great idea for them to do it at the lowest affordable cost. But what has he got to do with that? I, I, mean, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> is he proposing wage and price controls? <laughs> and the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, he is. He is proposing. And, and Hillsdale College, for the benefit of anyone who has been living in a cave, accepts no federal money of any sort in order to be free of 
dictates from the bosses at the Department of Education. And nevertheless, the president just gets out there and tells you what to do, Larry Arn. You are not, in fact, the, the captain of your own ship or your own college. Well, one doesn't think so, but we, you know, we fight for that, and the jury's out on whether or not he can actually gain control of every private institution in the country, but the tendency is that way. Oh, it is. In fact, I want to play this next cut with that thought in mind. Cut number two. What was true then can be true now. Our unique strengths as a nation, our optimism and work ethic, our spirit of discovery, our diversity, our commitment to rule of law. These things give us everything we need to ensure prosperity and security for generations to come. Dr. Arndt, what makes us a unique nation is that we were the first to have a written constitution. Uh, He said so many things that sounded like he believed that, but he doesn't really believe that that's what makes us a unique nation. Well, there's a good uh, fact-checking thing at the site of the Heritage Foundation. People should go look, to because there's a lot of facts that he goes into there. But we can talk about the big whoppers. And, uh, and you know, innovation and, and central planning are not the same thing. Amen. And so there's lots of salutes to innovation. Uh, he talks about solar power, and solar power is true enough, getting cheaper, and it might even become economic, and I pray that it does. But that'll be because a bunch of people invented stuff, and he'll say it's because the government subsidized it. But look at the story of fracking. Did you know that, uh, I happen to know this because I know a guy who ran Helmerich and Payne, a really great big oil drilling company. Fracking was a government project in the beginning, the shale oil project in the Nixon administration. And they finally closed it because they couldn't make it economic. And then there's an employee, and I can't remember the name of the company, but it's one of the big companies, Exxon or somebody. And this guy decided to stay on it for 20 years, and the company let him, and he was a lone guy. And one by one, he solved the problems, and, and fracking became economic. Well, that's, isn't there a lesson in that? Yes. You know, I mean, the, the ro- he's worried about robots. How did they come to be? <laughs> Some guys at Bell Labs, you know, invented a transistor. And then thousands of people having very great insight have one by one by one put that technology in place. And that's how things work, isn't it? Well, and, uh, he has a different vision. In fact, it sums up in this next cut, cut number three, his vision of how things work, which is so upside down. Cut number three. In fact, it turns out many of our best corporate citizens are also our most creative. And this brings me to the second big question. We as a country have to answer. How do we reignite that spirit of innovation to meet our biggest challenges? Sixty years ago, when the Russians beat us into space, we didn't deny Sputnik was up there. We didn't argue about the science or shrink our research and development budget. We built a space program almost overnight, and 12 years later, we were walking on the moon. And so he wants people to draw a conclusion, Dr. Larry Arn, from that, that the government leads successfully in every problem that it confronts. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, there's the, the old saw, it was popular in the second, in the administration of George W. Bush, that uh, after the Sputnik, we passed the Higher Education Act. 
and that's how we got to the moon. That's what the, that's a very common thing to hear said. Right. But it, it's silly because 12 years after the Higher Education Act and 10 years, sorry, 12 years after the Sputnik, and 10 years after the first federal money started going to colleges for general purposes, a lot of it, by the way, not for people who were engineers and physicists, we landed on the moon. So how long does it take to go to college and then get a graduate degree? Huh. And were all those guys who put the moon project together, were they all two years out of graduate school? Yeah. So the truth is it just doesn't have anything to do with it. But, right? but, that, I mean, but it's such a beautiful bit of sophistry because it, it makes you believe that that is, in fact, cause and effect. And see, it, it's not, it is true, by the way, that a lot of good things for the economy have come from the military and from the space program. It's not like it's, it's, it's uh, simply, what, do you, what would you put it, sterile process. It's not at all. It's just that the government is so big now. It's half the economy. And, and its method is rules and plans and centralized authority with authority, by the way, in people who are not innovators themselves. And so at this scale, especially where everything is to be done that way, then it stifles the process. And there's signs that it is stifled in America. For example, I learned from the Heritage Foundation today, because they sent out some today, that, uh, that uh, uh, gains in pro- productivity are down in the Obama years. Interesting. Interesting. It? Yeah, it is. And because what, what we have to argue, and it's a difficult argument to make, is that there are some things that only the government can do, and that's why we have a government. And one of those things is the military defense of the continental United States and getting to the moon. But that does not empower them or even make them very good. It's just that they are the only people that can do them. That's, so I, here's a guide. I looked up today. I love to do things like this. I looked up George Washington's eighth uh, State of the Union message and compared it to Obama's eighth. Obama's is uh, about three times as long. The eighth is George Washington's longest. Huh. And here, here are the subjects it discusses. Uh, relations with the Indians, as they were called then. Uh, the, a treaty with Britain, a treaty with Spain, a, dr- a treaty with Algiers and Tunis having to do with the Barbary pi- Pirates. The Navy. Uh, buying things for the military, but making sure not to interfere with the prominence of private manufacturing, and then support for education. And after the break, I'll tell you how he wanted to do that. Don't go anywhere, America. It's you here with Dr. Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's the hour of the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week for the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. And all of these dialogues, now more than 150 hours of them, available at hughforhillsdale.com for binge listening. Uh, We are reviewing President Obama's last State of the Union. We went to break. Uh, Dr. Arn was reviewing George Washington's last State of the Union. I'd like you to restart that for the benefit of people who just walked in and didn't hear your comparison between the two, uh, President Washington and President Obama's last eighth State of the Union address. Yeah, and Washington's are all the same, by the way. You can go read them, and they always concern constitutional subjects, and when they don't, they concern uh, government support for, and always small, for things that are private, that are good for the country, with an effort not to supplant the private things. So there's relations with the Indians, treaty with Britain, treaty with Spain, treaty with the countries that the Barbary pirates came from, the Navy. 
then he says we're going to have to buy a lot of stuff and make sure we can make a lot of stuff so our military can be strong. But we've got to be careful not to supplant private manufacturing. We've got to encourage and support that, not take over it. Then he says, uh, he, says uh, he wants to give premiums for people who invent things in agriculture, and he mentions that they should be small. <laughs> and then he says, and then he has a big plan in education, and this is kind of a lifelong plan with George Washington. He wanted to start a military academy, which he did, West Point, and he wanted to start a national university. He actually left his largest bequest outside his family for the founding of such a thing, and there's some idea of the curriculum, which is, of course, very different from the curriculum of most colleges today, but not, I'm happy to say, my own. Huh. And uh, And it's an interesting fact about this thing, because... Washington, and then uh, Adams, and then Jefferson, and then Madison, and then Monroe, all tried to get that thing funded. And they were all told by the Congress that it wasn't constitutional. Huh. And, of course, the Congress is speaking to the makers of the Constitution. Yes. <laughs> but they took their Article One power very seriously, didn't they? They did, though, didn't they? Uh. It was very good. And, and, uh, and so if you just read Washington's, they're, they're full of restraint. They're, they're at least as full of hope as Obama at his best can be. Uh, you know, Washington swelled at the thought of the great nation we were building. And remember, we built that nation. We talk about how complex the times are. The population of the United States and the land area of the United States increased by orders of magnitude in the first hundred years of the Union. And the government kept up with that and didn't grow in scope or size nearly as fast as that and didn't grow in scope at all. And did not lose touch with its people nor the organization of the necessary order. It did not fall apart. That's right. And, and it depended so much. Like the, you know, so my favorite piece of legislation in history is either the Northwest Ordinance or the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act gave away 10% of the land area of the United States to private parties, uh, about 2.5 million of them. And it did it in a, in a law that is 1,320 words long. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I'm going to say to the Republicans tomorrow, Nikki Haley, in her very excellent response, made the point that Republicans have to own their part in this transformation of our government, which Obama intends to continue. It's plain from his speech last night. And, and I think that's very true, because until we get back to the art of making simple laws at the federal level that are actually made by the people who are elected to make them, then we won't have a government that we can control. Very, very well said. So let me play for you the most disturbing thing he said last night, Dr. Arn, uh, to me at least. Cut number nine. Our foreign policy has to be focused on the threat from ISIL and al-Qaeda. But it can't stop there. For even without ISIL, even without al-Qaeda, instability will continue for decades in many parts of the world. In the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in parts of Pakistan, in parts of Central America and Africa and Asia. Some of these places may become safe havens for new terrorist networks. 
Others will just fall victim to ethnic conflict or famine, feeding the next wave of refugees. The world will look to us to help solve these problems. And our answer needs to be more than tough talk or calls to carpet bomb civilians. That may work as a TV soundbite, but it doesn't pass muster on the world stage. We also can't try to take over and rebuild every country that falls into crisis, even if it's done with the best of intentions. That's not leadership. That's a recipe for quagmire, spilling American blood and treasure that ultimately will weaken us. It's the lesson of Vietnam. It's the lesson of Iraq, and we should have learned it by now. Now, Larry Arendt, this is where Bill Ayers was ghostwriting, and the inner Obama is revealed as the anti-Vietnam uh, 60s radical sprung back with a generational shift. It was remarkable. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, you know, it's, it, first of all, omissions in this section of the speech are glaring. Yes. Uh, 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 ISIS is, is uh, located, its base, its headquarters are in southern Iraq, and that's the Iraq that Obama left. And if there had been the two or 3,000 American troops in that part of the world, that might have stopped that from for- forming. Also, I read that the ISIS leadership, is many of them are generals from the Republican Guard, where we didn't finish, you know, we had the Republican Guard trapped against a river in middling and eastern Iraq, and we stopped the fight yep. and let them go. In 1991. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, what are the lessons of Vietnam? It's a fact that Winston Churchill didn't want to get involved in Vietnam. He thought if you go to a place that's a jungle place and you fight proxies of theirs with your own troops, that's a bad strategic calculus. So there's something to that argument, right? But if you do go and do that and win and don't finish the job, as we did in both Vietnam and Iraq, that's a worse strategic folly. That's exactly what I, I looked up and I said, my God, he's got it exactly wrong. The lesson of Vietnam and Iraq is if you win, don't give it back. Yeah. And see, there, there, you know, I, I would favor, have favored a Middle Eastern strategy that relies more on our allies and doesn't try to build free governments in the middle of tribal warfare. And I do favor that very much right now. And having said that, though, you got to give it to the to the George W. Bush administration that they got a lot done there, and it was an act of courage to do the surge, and then we gave away the benefits of that. We lost the and peace. Yep. I'll be right back with Doctor Doctor Larry Arne is my guest from Hillsdale College. Hugh for Hillsdale dot com for all of the Hillsdale dialogues. What did the president say about Lincoln? We'll find out when we come back. America, stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, American Sue Hewitt, a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue this week, the last radio hour of the week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, for all that is Hillsdale. Hugh for hillsdale.com for all of these dialogues. We are reviewing the substance and the specifics of President Obama's last State of the Union address. He referred to Abraham Lincoln, about whom uh, very few people in this country know more than my guest, Dr. Larry Arn. Let's listen to that uh, clip, cut number 13. It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better. 
I have no doubt a president with the gifts of Lincoln or Roosevelt might have better bridged the divide. And I guarantee I'll keep trying to be better so long as I hold this office. But my fellow Americans, this cannot be my task or any president's alone. There are a whole lot of folks in this chamber, good people, who, who would like to see more cooperation, would like to see a more elevated debate in Washington, but feel trapped by the imperatives of getting elected, by the noise coming out of your base. I know, you've told me. It's the worst kept secret in Washington. And a lot of you aren't enjoying being trapped in that kind of rancor. But that means if we want a better politics, and I'm addressing the American people now, if we want a better politics, it's not enough just to change a congressman or change a senator or even change a president. We have to change the system to reflect our better selves. I think we've got to end the practice of drawing our congressional districts so that politicians can pick their voters and not the other way around. We could spend hours on this segment alone, Dr. Arndt, but what do you make of his summoning of Lincoln and FDR and his asserting that he has few regrets, which is really the opposite of humility? Well, he, uh, first of all, he has in recent weeks uh, referred to people who oppose his action on immigration as shameful and un-American. Yes. And uh, that's strong talk. Uh, in the in the height of the Civil War, Lincoln was reserved about his criticism of the Confederacy and its leaders. And uh, for example, the strong one of the strongest things that is the beautiful thing. It is strange that some men should should pray to a just God that they may wring their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. Uh, but he 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 acknowledged them as praying people. So that's one thing. The second thing is you can't say that Lincoln is your is your uh, example for radical innovation because Lincoln did did right as our case is new, so we must think anew. That's in his annual message to Congress in December 1862. And and uh, and but Lincoln is the man who believes that the laws of nature and of nature's God are abiding truth always and everywhere judges of all human action, and that the Constitution of the United States is the legal expression of them and must be upheld and respected at all costs. And if you're going to isolate the great themes of Abraham Lincoln's life, those are they. Yeah. And, and so, you, you, like, uh, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus in, in 1861, in the, in, right after he was inaugurated to save the state of Maryland from going to the Confederacy, and then the Capitol would be surrounded. So he gets Congress reconvened, and he, and, and he justifies that in a long argument, and then he asks them to ratify that, you see. So when he takes an expansive view of his powers at a time when the, when the Union is cracking up, he then goes to the competent legislative authority and asks them to support him. And they have the option not to do that. And this is not the same 
Oh, it's so far and, removed. Rather, not only non-personal humility, but institutional humility is absent from these seven years. And that is really a necessary ingredient in constitutional order. There were good passages in this speech, by the way. I, you know, I'll confess to you, I liked it better than I have liked most of them, which is saying some, something of some meaning. But on the other hand, you know, he says we're fighting to keep the Internet open, right? Well, it's been more heavily regulated in his administration than ever. And in his first term, his regulatory czar called that. Cass Sunstein has called for uh, requirements that people uh, recognize opposing remarks on each individual website. And if they won't do it, we will give them the famous nudge. Yeah, the so, nudge theory. So he, those things, you know, if you're going to make a case that you're standing up for the rule of law, you should admit the charges against you and say why they don't fit. Very well but you said. you get that from him ever. Ever. I'll be right back with more from Dr. Larry Arnn. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Uh, we have spent three segments talking about the president's speech. I don't want to allow the hour to pass without, in our last segment here, talking about Nikki Haley and uh, the governor of South Carolina's response. Let me play two clips from them, Dr. Arnn. Cut number 15. Barack Obama's election as president seven years ago broke historic barriers and inspired millions of Americans. As he did when he first ran for office, tonight President Obama spoke eloquently about grand things. He's at his best when he does that. Unfortunately, the president's record has often fallen far short of his soaring words. As he enters his final year in office, many Americans are still feeling the squeeze of an economy too weak to raise income levels. We're feeling a crushing national debt, a health care plan that has made insurance less affordable and doctors less available, and chaotic unrest in many of our cities. Even worse, we are facing the most dangerous terrorist threat our nation has seen since September 11th. And this president appears unwilling or unable to deal with it. And then she added this cut number 16. Today, we live in a time of threats like few others in recent memory. During anxious times, it can be tempting to follow the siren call of the angriest voices. We must resist that temptation. No one who is willing to work hard, abide by our laws, and love our traditions should ever feel unwelcome in this country. Now, Dr. Arnn, about this speech, there's been much controversy. I was on ABC listening to it live, did not hear any anti-Donald Trump uh, rhetoric in that, but many people did. And in fact, Nikki Haley said one of the angriest voices she was referring to this morning on Today Show, uh, the following morning on the Today Show, was Donald Trump. What did you make of her generally? Specifically, what did you make of that comment about angriest voices? Well, um, uh, first of all, I thought she was superb. Yes. She's really good. Uh, She should... You know, the traditions of America, by the way, begin with a radical revolution that, that stated universal and eternal principles. So I like to talk about American principles. I think that's a better term. And the institutions that gave rise to them. Uh, about the angry voices, first of all, you know, Donald Trump doesn't seem angry to me. <laughs> I mean, for, for one thing, he's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, so... I don't know. He, he, uh, he, his, his methodology about immigration is like his methodology about free trade. He says the boldest dynamite thing first, 
and then he qualifies it to make it more moderate. And that generates spectacular headlines, which he may very well understand, but it makes him weak with the independents. And uh, I don't know whether he could campaign successfully in front of them or not, but if he, if he, if he doesn't, he won't get elected president and probably won't get the nomination. So, I, I, you know, I do know a lot of Republicans are very disturbed about Donald, Donald Trump, and I think what they ought to be doing instead is learning what's good in him, and there are some things, and then try to beat him. And uh, then you'll have a real contest, and we're beginning to get that, I think, too. And I, and I, when I was listening and I heard her say that, I thought she was talking specifically. Now, I, I stand corrected on the Today Show the day after. She said, yeah, one of the angrier voices is Donald Trump, and I agree with you. He, he's wildly entertaining, and I don't think of him as angry. I think of a lot of his supporters as being particularly angry. Uh, they do attack anyone online whom they believe to be not of the, the true faith uh, with a vengeance that the Inquisition might have had a tutorial from. Nevertheless... He is himself not angry, and I don't think she was talking about the same thing when she was asked that question on today's show. It's an interesting time, Larry Arn, and she gave a great speech in response to a vacuous one. He did. She did. And see, here's the the thing about immigration. It's worth saying this. I wish wish these guys running for president would say it. Maybe they will. The, The question presented by immigration, as it's run right now in America, is the fundamental question in politics. In Aristotle... The good regimes of the various kinds all serve the people, and the bad regimes serve the rulers. So just think about immigration. The question is, do the people pick the government, or does the government pick the people? And that's what's going on, right? I mean, there's a very large group of people who are in the country illegally, and they're a political football because both sides tend to think they're going to vote for the Democrats. Yep. Right. Yep. And so so it's all wrapped up with that. And I think Obama would do a very good thing, a presidential thing, if he would talk about that and give assurance about that. Yeah, but he won't. In fact, last night he did the opposite or not last night on the State of the Union night when he said he wants to take away political redistricting from the traditionally representative bodies that have controlled it and give it to the progressive-minded, nonpartisan technocrats, which is, in fact, code for let us uh, gerrymander with a gloss into Democratic majorities everywhere. Yeah, see, that, and one fears that. The same stuff about the Internet, the same stuff about campaign finance funding, right? All those big bills that regulate campaign finance are fought out on partisan lines. And so unions are allowed to give a lot, and they give more than any other single group, especially public employee unions. And corporations, they want to restrict them, see. And, and uh, all of that means, and that's very sensitive in a free country, because the only means in this purely representative form, which is the first one ever made that we have of controlling the government, through elections and how elections are regulated is therefore very sensitive and that means that these just like immigration these questions of uh, voter ID and these questions of campaign spending limits I mean God the McCain-Feingold part of the way through still had a provision in it that made it uh, illegal to criticize a candidate for office 90 days 
in in advance of an election. Yeah, it's remarkable. By in many fact, groups that give in politics. You're going down to talk to the Republican retreat, and and I hope you remind them that one of the great champions of free speech in this country is Mitch McConnell. Because he yeah. always knew this. 45 seconds, yeah. Larry He always defended free speech. That's how I got to know him. And I don't think nearly as ill of him as most people. I like him. I like I him a lot. I like him greatly for that. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. And see, remember, one of the things that appeals in Trump is that he is wholeheartedly and unashamedly that the purpose of the government of the United States is to serve its citizens. That uh, well said, as usual. Dr. Larry Arn, good luck at the Republican retreat in energizing our Article One muscles. And uh, we will talk again next week on the next Hilltail Dialogue. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. <laughs>